For those of you that um, are going back to your seats, I want to want you to take note of one thing. Um, in the back today, we have um, a table uh, that is filled with Bibles, and um, I don't know if you call this, an, it's not a New Year's resolution, but it's just something that we want to value in our church, and that is kind of disengaging from our phones, especially during church. Um, I'm certainly guilty of it myself, where you have your Bible on your phone, and you open the Bible on your phone, and you find yourself on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the like, so, so quick. And so we want to just try to make this time a time that is, um, I guess, away from technology. There's so few moments in our lives that we are not connected to the technological advances of our world. And we'd like for this time to be one that, that you are disconnected. And so if you don't have a Bible, you could, uh, these Bibles are for you. If you want a Bible, take the Bible. It's home. Put your name in it. It's for you. But we want to make sure that everyone has a Bible uh, that you can read God's word, you can see it in its context, and um, not be so held by your phone or your, your phone device or your watch. Um, so, with that being said, um, this morning we're going to continue looking at the mission of our church. For those of you that are unfamiliar with what the mission of our church is, let me just simply say it is to be loved and to love. Uh, you'll see this phrase or tagline on our information, on our website, and everywhere. And this is a particular time that we're spending unpacking what be loved and loved means. And so this morning, we're going to continue studying what our mission is. Our scripture text this morning comes from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and including that also uh, verse 19 of that same chapter. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to there. It literally is almost at the very back of the Bible. One of the last books included there. Chapter 4, small little 7. Let me read it. It's also in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We love because he first loved us. Let me pray. (coughs) Lord, the truth of our lives is that we may understand what it means to love and we may sometimes even love. Uh, But what we have learned and what we probably don't even know is that it's even more difficult to be loved. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be with us this morning that you would soften our hardened hearts, our prideful minds, that we might learn and to be loved by you through your word. In particular, I ask that you would help us understand what it means to be loved by those in the church, your family, that we might indeed do the very thing you've called us to do, which is love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, a Jew, and a Holocaust survivor. And he spent some time in the Auschwitz um, concentration camp. Now, he survived it, and when he survived it, he penned this famous little book called Man's Search for Meaning. Now, this book is the conclusion of his question as to why only one in 30 individuals survived the concentration camp. He thought, what was it that enabled these individuals to survive the great horrors that they went through? I mean, the meaningless work, the brutal beatings, the loss of loved ones, the disease, the starvation. What was it? And he came to this conclusion in this book, and this, his conclusion was this. That these individuals were able to cope with their awful circumstances because they were conscious of the reason for their existence. That they knew that there was a loved one waiting for them or that there was some unfinished work for them waiting for them at home. He's often fond of quoting the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, a man who knows the why of his existence will be able to bear almost any how. And the reality of this is I believe this to be true as the church as well. That the church has to have great clarity on its why to survive anyhow. You see, if we fail to understand our why, why we exist, why do we meet together every Sunday, gather in homes throughout the week, or feed and clothe the hungry and poor, give away our money, then we will not be able to bear any how that we face. I mean, at the slightest moment of discomfort or frustration in the church, we will give up. We will leave. And this is the truth of most churches not most churches, but a lot of churches throughout our country. I mean, slowly but surely, churches are shutting down, are decreasing in attendance. In Little Rock alone, especially closer to downtown and to this parts of the city, you can drive along and see beautiful relics of churches, churches that were once filled with laughter and song and joy and the preaching of the gospel, but now they're empty, given to apartments or for sale. Why is it? They're closed. Why is it that these churches no longer exude the joy they once had? I think perhaps the reason is, is they lost sight of their why. Why are they doing what they're doing? They weren't able to deal with the how that they faced. It is so important as a church that we have great clarity on our why. For when we have great clarity on our why, we're able to endure anyhow. This morning, I want to communicate to you with as much clarity and simplicity our why. And I've already said it. I just used a different word. That our why at Central Hope is to be loved and to love. I said it's our mission. It's our why. This is what we are about Our why is derived from verse 19 of our scripture reading today. We love because he first loved us. I consider this to be my life verse. I mean, if you were to prick me and force me to say, how would you understand the Bible? Or how would you understand what it means to be a Christian? I'd say it's 1 John 4.19. Because of this. What it means to be a Christian is this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. 
This is a command that has been given by God to all of His followers in in the entire history, both in the Old and in the New Testament. It's a commandment that Jesus Himself embraced and taught in His life and in His teaching. The why of any Christians is simply put to love. Yet for anyone who has seriously attempted to follow Christ's commands to love God and love neighbor, you know how very difficult it is to follow those very commands. We love ourselves more than we love God. We love to take care of ourselves before we take care of our neighbors. Sometimes we even go so far as to hate our neighbors. And this causes a significant problem. It's what churches call sin. It's what we might know deep in our heart that something is not right, that we're not even following our why. But you see, there's that second part of 1 John 4, 19. It's not that we just love, but rather that we are loved. 1 John 4, 19 says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. God loved us by sending his son to earth to do for us what we were incapable of doing. Living a life in accordance to the law of love that God has given to us in his word. But then he died a death as an atonement for our sin. And he did this because he loved us. It wasn't anything. It wasn't anything we did. It wasn't our faith that he's foresaw in the future. It wasn't even our moral obedience. What we do, it was simply an act of love independent of who we are or our actions. And indeed, this is profound. And it is in receiving this love that brings about the radical transformation that enables us to love. At the end of last week, which was a sermon on being loved by God, where I went into further detail on that very thing that I just spoke on. I said that we can experience the love of God in three ways. We can experience it through prayer, scripture, and the sacraments. But I left off one very, very important aspect of experience, experiencing God's love. And that is being loved by the family of God. I left it off intentionally because I wanted to spend an entire week on what it means to be loved by the family of God. What does it mean to be loved by the people that you see in this room? What does it mean to rub shoulders week in and week out? It's my conviction that until we experience the love of the church, that we really won't fully understand what it means to be loved by God. And if we're not loved by the church and loved by God, then we're going to really struggle to love God and to love our neighbor. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to slow down and look at why, or give you two reasons why being loved by the church is so important. And then I'm going to talk about three very practical ways that we can experience the love of the church. Okay, So two reasons why you need to be loved by the church, followed by three very practical ways that you can do it. Okay, Why do we need to be loved by others? We need to be loved by others because first, we need it. You need to be loved by the church because you need it. The Apostle John commends the church in verse 7 saying, Beloved, let us love one another. 
This is a very similar phrase that Jesus himself taught the disciples saying this in John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Why would Jesus and his disciples command us to love one another? It is simply this. Because we need it. We need to be loved by the church. When God created man, it was just Adam himself. And he also created everything. If you've seen Genesis 1, and one of the phrases that is very consistent in Genesis 1 is saying, He created the stars of the sky, and it is good. He created man, and it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. All throughout Genesis. But there is one, it is not good. And do you know what that phrase is in reference to? It is not good for man to be alone. And this is when God created Eve. Now this is before sin had come into the world. Before decay and death and destruction that sin brought came into the world. And what this communicates to all of us is built in each and every one of us is a need for another person. You, you could be a perfect person and you still need another person. You need each other. In our highly individualized world that celebrates accomplishments of individuals and glorifies the celebrity, we are so tempted to believe that if we're smart enough, capable enough, disciplined enough, that we can make it on our own. That we can depend on ourselves accomplish far more than we could ever honor with others. And I have no doubt this applies to the church as well. But we need to be loved by the church because we need it. We can't make it on our own. We are finite and full of needs, prone to weakness, especially in the life of faith. In 1996, John Krakauer released the book Into the Wild, In this work of nonfiction, Krakauer chronicles the life of Christopher Johnson McCandless. Now, after graduating from college in 91, McCandless roams through the western United States on a vision quest like those made by his heroes, Jack London and John Muir. In the Mojave Desert, McCandless abandons his car, strips off the license plates, and burns all his cash. He then gave himself a new name, Alexander Supertramp. Now, unencumbered by money and belongings, McCandless was now free to wallow in the raw, unfiltered experiences that nature presents. He craved this blank spot on the map and found it eventually in an abandoned bus in the Alaskan wilderness. Much of the story that takes place in Into the Wild captures his time on that bus where he spent much of his time alone amongst the wild. Now, unfortunately, McCandless, who tried to live off the land, took a berry, a berry he should not have eaten, and ate it. And he got very sick. He was far from any civilization or community. And McCandless, slowly but surely, ended up dying in the bus in Alaska. I think that this is the way that many of us approach our spirituality. That we can just do it on our own. We can kind of make it just with our Bible in our rooms and maybe some worship songs on the way to 
to, to work or something like that. But you have no idea sometimes what you're actually doing. You need brothers and sisters who can be there to help you, to guide you, to nourish you when you are sick. Because truth be told, McCandless could have survived if he had friends who could have gotten him to a doctor. It's not like it was a disease that it would just take him away. But he had no one. Because he thought he could do it on his own. Why do you need to be loved by others? Because you need it. You need it. You cannot make it on your own. Not in life, but especially in your faith. Be loved by the church. You need it. There's a second reason why I think it's vitally important that we're loved by the church. And that's because that when we are loved by the church, we experience God like never before. Look at John 4, verse 11. Look what it says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He's saying this. See, when we love one another, there is a tangible experience of God that if we weren't loved by another, we'd miss it completely. Parts of the church overemphasize the personal relationship that exists with Jesus in the new covenant. I mean, it is not uncommon to hear in some church circles, Christianity is not about religion, it's about a relationship. And while I think there's a lot to commend about this, and there's truth to this, I think it lends itself to some false sort of thinking. That it's just you and Jesus living in this life. That it's just about your relationship with Jesus and not about the relationship with others. But the truth of the matter is, indeed, is it about you and Jesus, but it is also about you and Jesus and his body, which is the church. That when you experience Christ's church, you are actually experiencing Christ himself. That in the friction that comes in doing life together, in the forgiveness that comes in the church after that friction is caused, there is this beautiful experience, a tangible taste of the love of God that had we not had this tension, we would have missed it completely. We experience God in the relationships that are formed between one another. We love one another. And in this love, we experience God's love in ways we never would have expected. In beautiful ways. The author Philip Yancey writes about his experience of God in the church. By the way, it handled a troubled man that came into his church named Adolphus. Now, Adolphus was a psychologically sick man who had fought in Vietnam. If he took his medications on Sundays, he was quite calm and peaceable. However... If he failed to take his medication, Yancey says church got quite exciting that Sunday. See, Adolphus would at times during these occasions would hop over pews in the middle of the worship service. He would lift up his hands and make obscene gestures. And at a particular part in their church's worship called the prayers of the people, everyone in the church would call out a prayer like pray for the peace in the world or a healing for my friend, Lord. And the whole church would respond, Lord, hear our prayers. 
And Adolphus soon figured out that he could use this as a platform for his agenda. And one of my favorite ones that he mentioned was Adolphus said, Lord, thank you for creating Whitney Houston and her magnificent body. (laughs) Now, Yancey said, after a puzzled pause, a few chimed in weekly, Lord, hear our prayer. (laughs) Now, the people of the church surrounded Adolphus. They corrected him appropriately uh, when his outburst came. They helped him get to church. A psychiatrist in the church even made it his personal project to help Adolphus take his medication and to calm him down and to help him live his life. And indeed, eventually Adolphus did calm down and he became a member of the church after many tries. And Yancey writes, Grace comes to people who do not deserve it. And for me, Adolphus came to represent grace. In his entire life, no one had ever invested that kind of energy and concern in him. He had no family. He had no job. He had no stability. Church became for him the one stable place. It accepted him despite all he had done to earn rejection. The church did not give up on Adolphus. It gave him a second chance, a third chance. And a fourth. Christians who had experienced God's grace transferred it to Adolphus. And that stubborn, unquenchable grace gave me an indelible picture of what God puts up with by choosing to love the likes of me. Here was a church that exudes the grace of God. When we love one another in the way that Christ loved us. We exude grace in tangible ways that we would miss had we not been there. Why is it we experience the love of the church? That we might have a tangible taste of God's love. Now, having given you two reasons why you need to be loved by the church, I want to offer three practical ways that you can begin to experience the love of the church, that you might begin to taste the grace of God. They're very practical. The first practical way is to show up. Simply to show up. I mean, Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. The need you have to be amongst God's people, the longing that you have to experience the love of God in tangible ways is predicated on your willingness to show up. If you don't show up, I know it's really simple, but if you don't show up, you miss out on those sorts of things. Last summer, my pastor friend in Florida was starting to hear from people in his church about their discontent, about how they felt disconnected from the church. And they started to put a little bit of pressure on him. But then he started to think. He's like, wait a minute. This is summertime. People are all over the place. Don't put this on me. And in a very loving way, he said, look, church, you're disconnected from the church. The problem is not with me. The problem is with you bouncing around, going from vacation to vacation. And that is going to lead to being disconnected from the body of Christ. You feel disconnected because you are disconnected. 
you haven't shown up. And it simply begins by this. You want to be loved by people? Take the Acre family motto. Always show up. Right there, Brandon. That one was for you. Show up. The only way that you're going to experience love is if your face is in front of people. It's just simply that. Show up. Secondly, second practical way that we can be loved by the church is to trust it. To trust it. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. If I don't trust you, you cannot love me no matter how much love you have for me. I'm going to tell you a story about my childhood. I grew up in what what I call the southernmost borough of New York, Boca Raton, Florida. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with Boca, the reason I call it the southernmost borough of New York is that there are a significant number of New Yorkers that moved down into Boca. And this was the case for my neighborhood. And across the street from my house was a sweet old lady named Roberta Rosenthal. Now, if you forgive me, if you don't like voices, forgive me. I love to, to talk like Roberta. So Roberta was this New York Jew who smoked to Virginia Slims, walked around with a dog, with the neighborhood gossip. She was everywhere. And so here I was playing basketball in my front yard. I got to know Roberta because she was out all the time. And because we were able to develop a relationship, Roberta grew fond of me. And mind you, she's wearing like this. This is how I describe it. So this is what I want you to picture. Just picture a two tanned woman, kind of so wrinkly. And she's wearing this, uh, I think it's called a halter top. And it's like the texture is a towel. Okay, so it's like a halter top towel. <laughs> and she would come up to me. Hello, Daniel. Actually, she called me Danny. She goes, Danny, you know I love you. And every time she said, Danny, you know I love you. I mean, he just gave me the willies. Like, Like, how can I get inside as fast as possible? The truth is, I I wouldn't say I love her. But here's the thing. It was hard for me to trust her. That every time she said she loved me, like, it just, it just didn't, I don't know. I didn't trust her. I mean, she was my neighbor. We were friendly. We were friend, but I could never say I love you back. And the reason is I didn't necessarily fully trust her. Because if you don't trust them, you cannot experience someone's love no matter how much love they have for you. But in the church, we're called to trust one another. To open ourselves up to one another. To share the needs that we have in our lives because we have needs. And to know the needs too and to share those needs. Because in the process of us sharing the needs with one another, that is actually the act of trusting one another. Now some of you, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, some of you have been burned by the church. And it is difficult for you to trust the church again. And I want you to know I understand that. But if we're going to experience God, and we're going to experience what we really need, we got to begin to trust it. Find one or two person in the church, in this very church, if you want to just start simply, 
someone that you can trust. And you can begin to share what's going on in your life. And slowly but surely begin to work from there. It's not easy. But your ability to trust one or two and then, Lord willing, more will be the degree that you experience the love of God and the love of the church and be on mission pursuing the why. We love because he first loved us. So you got to trust got to show up and thirdly you got to forgive talked about the need to trust but part of the reason why we don't trust is because we have been hurt and the truth of the church is that it is not a perfect place in fact there is no such thing as a perfect church as the great pastor charles spurgeon once said if there were the minute you stepped in the door It would cease to be perfect. The church is an imperfect place. And one of the realities of being a part of an imperfect place is that you are going to experience the hurt of that imperfect place. It is the reality. Let me just set it from here. I can hurt you. You can hurt me. You can hurt one another. And so what do we do as Christians? We forgive. It was Jesus who taught his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. When I was in seminary, I thought about this phrase. I was like, I can't tell you the last time where I could tell you the last time I, in church, had a conversation where I forgave those who sinned against me. It's because the church doesn't quite make a practice of forgiveness. We harbor resentment and bitterness, and this divide takes place, and we just show up in church, do our thing, check the box, and leave. But Jesus, here's what I love about that prayer. But Jesus goes on. In fact, when he ends the prayer, do you know where he goes right after he ends the prayer? He goes right back to this forgiveness, saying, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. As a church, it is vitally important to offer forgiveness to those who hurt hurt you. Because you have been forgiven a great debt by your father. Now, how in the world does this practically work itself out? I'm not here to do a whole sermon on forgiveness, but I want to tell you, in essence, what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying this. I am no longer going to be the judge of this situation. I'm going to allow God to be the judge. God is the one that is going to deal with the hurt against me. And God is either going to punish it very strongly or he's going to punish Christ very strongly. But either way, I'm going to allow God to be the judge. That's forgiveness. So if I hurt you or you hurt me, it is vitally important that I say it is God who is judge. Let us be brothers. Let us be sisters in Christ. This doesn't mean you trust them with everything, but it does mean you live in harmony and peace. We've got to forgive. If we're going to be loved by God and loved by others, we've got to show up. We've got to trust.
and we got to forgive. If we do these things, I'm convinced that we will get very clear on our why. And we will love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We'll love our neighbors as ourselves. And we will see a church that lasts and lasts and lasts. Because we have great clarity on our why. Friends, beloved by the church. Let me pray. Gracious God, I don't know why you've given us the gift of the church. Sometimes it's hard to see it in that perspective. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. We're a bunch of imperfect people that are prone to hurt one another, that are reluctant to forgive, that are reluctant to trust, that are even reluctant to show up. But you've aligned yourself with the church. And it's at the church where you reside. And so I ask that you would help us. Help us to entrust ourselves to the church. To show up when even it doesn't feel like "Mm, it's going to make any difference. Because, Lord, you are here. We need each other. We need you. We long for you. Amen.